It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Our guest this week is Tessa Wardley, a former global environmental policy consultant and current policy advisor to the UK's Department of the Environment. She's an author of six books, including The Mindful Art of Wild Swimming, which is fascinating to me, and Mindful Thoughts for Runners. She is a passionate river enthusiast who has worked and played in our global waterways all the way from New Zealand to the Arctic Circle. Today, we'll chat about her newest book, The Eco Hero Handbook, Simple Solutions to Tackle Eco-Anxiety. Welcome to the podcast, Tessa. Hi, nice to meet you. Well, eco-anxiety, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we get to that, let's talk about you and your adventurous connection to water. You're in the UK, and uh, I'd love it if you could describe for our listeners your surroundings, where you live, so we can travel to you vicariously. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So I live in the south of England. So um, south of England, there's a band of chalk hills, a a chalk escarpment that runs east to west, um, which is called the North Downs. And I live just at the foot of that. And I live in a very old house, about 350 to 400 years old. And I'm lucky enough to have a garden with that um, at the back of the house. Um, It's a walled garden. Um, It's about 30 metres long by about 25 metres wide at its widest point, kind of wedge shaped. And at the moment, it's really quite dank and muddy in in the (laughs) middle of winter. And I have a large dog who has a tendency to dig in flower beds and dig holes in the lawn and things. But um, better times of year, it has a nice sort of shrubs and fruit trees along one margin, veggie patch at the back with a good compost heap behind and a pergola down one side, which has Um, rambling roses and wisteria climbing on it and a little rock garden just by the house with a little pond which is full of frogs um so yeah it sounds idyllic but at the moment (laughs) (laughs) at the moment we've just had the beast from the east which is very cold weather that we get that comes in from siberia and everything um has just turned to mud so it's it's slightly less appealing at this particular moment (laughs) And do you get snow there or is it just mostly muddy and rainy? So it's it's quite rare that we have snow, but actually recently we did just have, um, and it was so cold. It was lovely. It was proper snow that kind of blows, if you know what I mean. Not that we quite often get snow. It comes one day, then it turns to mush the next day and then mud the day after. But because we had an extended period of of cold, it actually hung around, but not massively deep. But um, it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was quite lovely. And when do you start planting out? I'm curious to know. <laughs> well, it varies, but, um, you know, we have, we do have plants that survive over winter, but um, more often it's sort of springtime. So, I mean, now just starting to think about putting some of the really hardy things out, um, you know, hopefully the last of the frosts have happened. Um, and this weekend it's really got quite mild and, as I say, nice and moist. So, yeah, real potential to start getting out in the garden and doing some planting. I'm envious of the break that you get uh, over winter because here in Southern California we're gardening year-round and there's really uh, – the soil gets very taxed. So I imagine your soil is really rich and when you do plant out, things take off. Or do you have to – do you have clay soil? Do you have sandy soil? Do you have to amend? Tell me a little bit more. Um, we're not too bad. We're on bands of clay um, and sort of sand both here so I have friends who have really quite heavy clay soils and others who have quite light sandy soils we we in our garden have a bit of a mix so we're, we're not too bad um but we do 
create quite a lot of compost so we dig that in every year to give it a give it a chance um to help out as well so yeah nice well i'm envious and just what are your fruit trees so we have um we have a couple of apples so we have a russet apple and another unknown <laughs> apple we have a cherry tree and we have a crab apple um and we we have had a um a green gauge tree but that sadly got diseased and died oh. and i'm currently um nurturing a fig tree that my dog keeps attacking and i honestly i was so upset with him recently though it was just beginning to bud again for you know we had a fantastic crop last year it's only about waist height and i've got a big dog and he's literally gone around snipping off biting off <laughs> every single end of the honestly i couldn't believe i was outraged but he's left about four so i'm hoping that that's going to be enough for it to struggle through oh goodness (laughs) well big dogs they you have to you have to protect them but i assume he's on the inside of the walled garden not the outside yeah yeah (laughs) he is at the moment until i boot him out yeah (laughs) right well i'm i'm so envious of of having that kind of space to have all those fruit trees and and your chill hours are incredible, which is great, which makes me wonder how you can grow a fig in that space, but they're, they're Mm -hmm. pretty hardy. Do you bring it in for the winter or is it in the ground? No, it's just in the ground. Yeah. It seems to, seems to be doing fine so far. Yeah. I mean, we have to, it's one of the few things I actually water in the summer. Most Mm -hmm. things I'm, I'm quite, mean with and I'm kind of like if you're not going to survive in my garden with minimal attention then you're probably not going to survive but the fig tree and maybe that's why my dog was interested because he realizes it's treated better than most of the other plants right (laughs) it's jealousy he's jealous (laughs) right well uh it seems like all the photos of you on the internet of you are of you swimming somewhere you clearly have a strong connection with nature and i assume the changes that have been taking place over the last few decades given your work in the environment where did this work in policy in environmental policy start for you so uh, my background is i studied marine biology um and then freshwater marine and freshwater um, resource management is sort of my academic background and so you know I come from Norfolk which is in the east of England I don't know if you picture that bulge on the right hand side of the UK um, that's East Anglia and so we are surrounded by water but there's also it's very low lying and there are water bodies called the Norfolk Broads um, so life in East Anglia tends to be quite water dominated. And I think probably that's where my interest grew. I spent a lot of time boating and and swimming as a child. And so, yeah, my academic studies, I guess, led me into um, the science of marine and fresh waters. And so I was a technical sort of specialist um, working with our environment agency. Um, And, you know, gradually I just became interested in actually how we make decisions about our environment and how we decide on you know how we are actually going to go ahead and manage that that those spaces and that environment and so I got involved um, with more the policy side of things and the implementation of legislation and how yeah how we can manage our spaces. I think much of the eco anxiety that we mentioned in the beginning of this and the the subject of the book that I experience is really like what you described in the introduction to the book, which is that the policy changes, the implementation of these policy changes that we need to make are taking way too long and are happening way too slow. And the way I think of it is that as a, as a human species, we have a gun to our head and we're acting like it's not loaded, you know? So I imagine you've dealt a lot with people who are 
coming to you with like, we need to do something now, or you yourself feel that way. And so this book addresses some of the things that people can do to help ease that. And and this is a loaded question. What are some of the things that we can do to feel better while actually doing something that makes a difference? Yeah. So there's sort of, um, yeah, I think there is that feeling, isn't there? That's kind of like, you know, the, the question is so big and so complex. What can I do? Anything I do is so small, you know, it's not going to make um, a big enough difference. So, you know, I think I strongly believe, um, particularly having worked in policy, that policy rarely happens without being driven by people. So if we can, as people, <laughs> consumers and, you know, activists can use our power and, you know, we can speak truth to power and do all those kind of lobbying activist type things. But if we can actually demonstrate that we are making changes in our own lives, then we can actually drive policy and governments and the policymakers to make those changes that we we so desperately need to see. I have to say what's one of the really encouraging things that I'm seeing at the moment is that businesses are really stepping up to make that change. And part a large part of that is driven by their consumers. Uh, I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years with um, businesses and they realise that one, the upcoming generation are really interested in purpose-led employment. And if they don't show that purpose, if they if they do show that purpose, they're getting the, the pick of the, the best graduates at the moment. And they, so that's one reason that they're <laughs> cleaning up their act. But I think they also, it is actually becoming apparent that the economic future of these businesses are really reliant on a decent global environment and that economically that they need to sort their sort their game out as well. So that's something that I find really encouraging. But there are a lot of things that we can do as individuals, lots of small things that added together can make a big difference. And, you know, actually in real terms, but also in demonstrating to those big corporations, institutions and governments that this is what people want. And that, you know, and that helps to drive bigger institutional action, I think. Right. It certainly is powerful, the almighty dollar. And, you know, I try to encourage people to put their money into organic agriculture and support companies that are doing the kind of, you know, right, making the right choices in terms of environmental sustainability efforts and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, Give me a couple of examples from the book that, that you find are easy things for people to do that will help ease eco-anxiety. Oh, I think, you know, there are, there are things in all kinds of areas. Um, Probably some of the biggest things you can look at doing are, Food waste and clothing waste, I think, are really big areas that we can all have an impact on. Interestingly, um, I don't know how this has played out in the States, but in in London during lockdown, food waste went down by something like 30 to 40 percent. And that was, yeah, it was amazing. The, The stats were incredible. And I mean, I guess partly that's because restaurants were closed down, but people um, they were saying they, those stats were given for domestic food waste. The thinking is that people were trying to go to the shop a little less than they normally would, were thinking were at home all day, so they were thinking a bit more carefully and preparing their own food. So there just wasn't the kind of waste happening, which that's a relatively small change in people's mindset and the way they're thinking about their food. And I think that's something that we can probably all bring into our daily lives is just thinking a bit more about our, our weekly shop and 
how much we're buying and what we're actually going to use it for so that it gets used and, you know, having a use up day towards the end of the week where you finish up all those bits that, you know, end up in the fridge that you would otherwise throw out. Uh, so I think that's one big area. Yeah. Another big area. Um, yeah. As I say, clothing waste is, um, is a really a phenomenal one. I have four daughters, um, oh gosh. <laughs> who are all teenagers at the moment. Um, you know, and that's a lot of interest in, in fashion and clothes and the way you look and they're moving towards, uh, you know, I'm struggling to persuade them that they should wear the same clothes for the last five years, but they are moving towards the kind of vintage, pre-loved market um, and they sell on all their clothes through sort of marketplace uh, websites and, and apps and they rarely buy new clothes these days so it's you know there are options I think um, and then as you get older you know I tend to buy clothes and wear them until they drop off you know right and you, can, you can I think you know as an adult you can maybe spend a bit money more money but buy fewer items and enjoy them a bit more and a bit longer is a way you can approach that. Absolutely. I I've for the last several years, I think I haven't bought an item of clothing. I mostly, I mostly get everything I wear off of swap tables at community events. Um, at, you know, our, our time bank potluck and our, we have this thing called the West side repair cafe where we, uh, repair items and we have big swap tables at those. And I've just gotten ha like half my wardrobe is from those things. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I, it's such a, the fashion industry is so wasteful and dirty. <laughs> it's yeah. highly polluting. So it's really good. It's really good to buy secondhand clothes if you can. So yeah. those are good ideas. I, I'd like to focus on the outdoor section of the eco hero handbook for a moment. Cause naturally, because this is a gardening podcast, yep. you, you bring up peat moss, which I'm really glad you did because there are people I, I've stood next to people who get vehemently angry when you talk about peat moss as not being sustainable because they just want to believe that it is. And so let's talk about it. What do people need to know about that piece, peat moss that's in their potting soil? So peat is probably after rainforests, one of the biggest places that sequesters carbon, it absorbs so much carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Uh, but it also, as soon as it's disturbed, it's releasing that into, it's releasing carbon into the environment. So it is basically like a fossil fuel because it's captured carbon over millennia and turned into this beautiful, rich peat. Um, and I completely understand you know, why farmers don't want to let that up. But actually, it is actually one of those real sort of no-brainers no in the environmental field that actually you just really shouldn't be disturbing peat, that you really have to find another way to <laughs> enhance your your growing, you know, either grow, you know, make your own compost to, to use that to provide that resource. Or, you know, there are other, you know, com more commercially available composts from garden centres as well. So, you know, it, it really is. And it's not just it's carbon that it releases. It's an amazing resource for um, holding water. So, Something like in the UK, 70% of our domestic water supplies come from peatland okay. because peat holds so much water. A lot of our uplands um, are made from peat effectively um, and there's a real problem with them drying out and becoming degraded and then what happens is the water just runs off really quickly and that's why you end up with big flooding problems and you just lose that water from the environment 
out to sea, but causing huge problems on the way. And there's a lot of um, burning of peat that, again, in, in the UK at the moment, we're looking into basically banning any peat fires um, because they could get out of control. And again, you're drying out the peat and losing that resource in terms of absorbing carbon, but also holding on to water. Yeah, it's a really valuable resource. And, it, you know, there really is kind of no excuse. Right. Um, because we have coconut coir that is a perfectly adequate substitute and it's a waste product. And yes, you do have to use a lot of water to, to remove the salts from it. And they pack it up and ship it across the, across the seas. Mm. But that still doesn't, I imagine, doesn't stack up to the kind of depletion of a natural resource that happens when you take a peat bog out of production or, you know, put it into production, actually. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I mean, there's, you know, inevitably, there are always balances and there is no perfect solution. <laughs> right. um, but it, yeah, it's still, you know, the, the quantity of peat that we're losing and the potent, the value it has absorb you know it's a double whammy as it is with rainforests you know if you're if you're digging up peat you're releasing carbon but you're also destroying its ability to absorb carbon you're also losing massive biodiversity because they have you know most amazing insect and plant life associated with it uh, as well um, and you're also losing your water storage which increases flood risks um, increases sediment washout, um, sedimentation of the rivers, you know, and sedimentation, sedimentation of the coastal seas, smothering the animal life in the, in the shallow seas. So potentially coral reefs in those areas. And, and so, the, the, it, you know, it's just a big knock on negative. <laughs> right. There's a big chain reaction. That comes yeah. From that. We've heard a lot on this podcast from recent guests about some of the other topics that you cover in the book, such as building habitats for wildlife and pollinators mm -hmm. and the effect of non-native species on that wildlife. But you list some statistics about how non-native species really affects wildlife. Can you share some of that? Yeah. So that's the um, non-native species can be quite devastating to the natural wildlife in an area. And if they're contained in our gardens, that's fine. You know, we know where they are. We know what they're, they're doing. The, but the trouble is they always get out at some point, you know, on our wellies or, uh, you know, seed propagation and, you know, wind birds, all the rest of it. So, I mean, within the UK, 60% of non-natives that harm wildlife and waterways are believed to come from gardens. Oof. And in, the, in the USA, it's that, yeah, it's a huge number. Huge. <laughs> um, and in the USA, the 42% of the species that are perceived to be threatened or endangered are at risk because of invasive species, which again, you know, that's quite shocking, isn't it? That the reason that these plants and you know species are actually at risk because of invasive species yeah i drive along i mean pretty much anywhere in this neck of the woods you drive along and you'll see fountain grass everywhere it mm -hmm. it is a totally invasive species it propagates like crazy and it is not something that we can get rid of uh, except by just taking it out of your gardens and replacing it with something native or that does not you know that has a sterile but even the seeds are important, you know, so just mm. don't plant fountain grass, folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine you have something like that, that spreads. What's the most, you know, the top of your head, uh, most invasive species that, that you have? 
in the UK that two that are a real problem are Himalayan balsam, which is it's quite a beautiful plant, actually, and it has these kind of seed pods. And when I was a kid, I remember we had a small patch near us. We used to actually, when they dry off, they pop and the mm. seeds spray out you know um we used to actually go along to pop them because it was such fun um <laughs> you know and now i kind of like think oh my god what were we right. thinking mm-hmm. um and you get that along a lot of waterways and yeah there's places around here that's just carpeted with it and you just think how um will you ever get rid of that another one is japanese knotweed which again tends to be along river basins and yeah it just very hard to get rid of and they also also cause a problem those I think it's Japanese knotweed that causes a particular problem around houses as well, because it actually has a really deep root structure. So it's actually causing damage to houses. Yeah, to houses, to the actual structure of houses as well. So that's a kind of a double whammy. (laughs) Well, and, and also motivation not to plant. Yes. Yeah. I should hope. (laughs) Wow. I love the idea that you put forward in the book about joining tree planting organizations. Mm. Uh, It's not just about planting trees, which we can all do on our own, of course, but it's the act of doing it with others that helps ease the anxiety, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think um, trees are very evocative, aren't they? And it feels like a really visible positive thing that you can do and you know it has been identified you know by lots of scientists are sort of saying that if we just plant trees then that is a really good start and that it also um, helps with the biodiversity crisis that we're facing as well as the the climate crisis and most areas there will be tree planting organizations we have something called the woodland trust that you can a chat which is a charity you can get involved in i know there's the arbor day is it the arbor day foundation in the mm-hmm. states which do a lot of global tree planting but i'm sure every area will have their own tree and woodland charity that you can get involved in and yeah they will have tree planting days i'm sure you know there are all sorts of tree planting schemes going on and they have loads of resources online uh, to help yeah we have tree people here as well which is a pretty big organization and there's there a lot of cities are giving away free trees or they'll come and plant a parkway tree um that of course doesn't involve the community effort but it's something to make a difference so um i i love i love that you talked about that I, now I, I have to jump to a different section of the book, food and shopping, which you mm-hmm. touched on a little bit earlier, but I wanted to specifically ask you, what are the worst foods that lead to deforestation so that we can try and avoid them? So, yeah, there are certain certain trees globally that are massively contributing to our deforestation problem. Some of the worst are palm oil and soy-related products. Uh, and very often soy is the problem is that it's used so extensively in animal feeds. Mm-hmm. So huge areas of rainforest are being felled to grow the soy to actually feed the animals so both dairy and and um, beef and sheep so those are the kind of things particularly to avoid palm oil as well is one of the ones that in the tropical rainforests uh, are being felled in huge swathes to be replaced with monocultures of palm oil and the trouble with that is those those plantations have very little biodiversity attached to them um, and you're losing a lot of your your carbon uh, absorption capability as well and palm oil crops up in so many products it's in everything process it seems really <laughs> it's very hard yeah i mean literally from lipsticks to skin skin treatments to um biscuits and yeah virtually everything there are now um sustainable palm oil plantations and 
you will sometimes see. And this is one of the big things that's been a bit of controversy over is whether you just cut out any products that have palm oil or actually for those countries where palm oil is a major a major product, a major source of income, actually maybe you should think about not just cutting out palm oil, but trying to identify companies and products that use sustainable palm oils. And well, follow-up question, because that, that whole idea of sustainable palm oil, what makes mm. it different? How is it raised differently? Do you know how they differentiate between sustainable palm oil and non? Um, it's not something I know a huge amount about, actually, but I know they they moving to much more organic production systems. And I think they're doing sort of cropping and rotating in a such a way that they're not and they're not clearing more virgin rainforest and and those kinds of things but yeah it's not something i know a huge amount about actually okay well i feel like i could go on asking you questions for hours but it is tip time <laughs> do you have a do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden night audience well i think um the tip that I, I i thought i might share i don't know if it's really a tip it kind of is but i i find trees there's something just so special about trees and particularly the fact that they absorb carbon so they're helping us with our climate emergency but they're also you know they're, they're kind of the grandfathers of our our world aren't they they oversee everything that that goes on and they support such a a wide diverse biodiversity of their own so this year um, I collected some little acorns uh, we had a most fantastic mast year this year which is when you have a huge crop from the fruiting trees um, so I collected some acorns and I suspended them over water so you just put a couple of pins one in either side uh -huh. get an old jam jar and balance the pins on the neck of the jam jar and and put water just up to underneath the the, the acorn and they shoot and root into that water so I now have and they're absolutely beautiful I've got sort of they're about sort of well, I don't know, 12 inches high, I guess, these little oaklings now. And they've got a full set of, you know, five or six leaves and a good root stock that you can see developing in, through the jar. So you can literally watch them grow. And then my plan is that in, so probably I'll probably plant them out quite soon, I think, um, even though supposedly they can survive off their acorn for a whole year. I feel like it's probably getting to the point where they're beginning to look like they've got a good good rootstock I'll probably plant them out quite soon and then when they've had a couple of years being nurtured in, by me in my garden I'll um I'll find somewhere to plant them that I think they'll they'll make a good contribution nice <laughs> that's a great tip I love it well thank you for sharing that tip Tessa <laughs> and for being a guest on the garden nerd tip of the week podcast oh it's been lovely thank you how do people find you so the best place to to find me or find my book is um is through the quarto website which they have a website cortonose.com and on instagram they have at corto.nose and they're at cortonose on facebook and twitter so they, those are the best places to and the book can be bought in pretty much any any bookshop um online and hopefully there'll be some real life bookshops in the states that have it as well yes i hope so okay and and i i guess you're pretty uninvolved in social media yourself i'm not uh, yeah i'm not very good i <laughs> i i do i do you know stalk a few people on facebook and um i actually i had do have a, an instagram which i think is tessa.wardley that i should check really you might but want I, to look i'll find it yeah <laughs> i literally i keep thinking i'm gonna get started and yes i i should have a 
a Tessa Wardley website at some point, but I've been saying that for about two years. So. Right. Well, after six books, it, it might be a good idea to have. A- I know. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine people would love to see you and where you swim uh, on, Ooh. you know, on social media. So maybe we'll see yeah. that in the future. Just saying. Yeah. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, all right, garden nerds, you'll find links to Tessa's new book on gardennerd.com this week. And we'll also post links to her book and her other books and where you can find them for you swimmers and runners out there as well. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen, visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on garden nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1 on Facebook as gardennerd.com. And of course our garden nerd YouTube channel, happy gardening.